When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Detectives say the 32-year-old cold case was cracked with the help from a deck of cards. On each card, a different cold case, whether it be a wanted person, a missing person, or an unsolved murder. Well, investigators say a prison inmate saw the victim's face on one of the cold case playing cards and then tipped investigators off. The Bernalillo County Sheriff's Department had the cards made up at the suggestion of a former cold case detective. I'm Tommy Ray. 
Cold Case Carb program I started here in Polk County has since grown across the U.S. This is not your ordinary deck of playing cards. These cards contain 52 unsolved cases, and with every hand that's played, the stakes are unusually high. They've been dealt to inmates across the nation, and investigators are hoping their tips will stack the odds in favor of the House. Now it's your turn. These victims have been dealt an unfair hand, and it's up to you to deal justice. Somebody, somewhere, has information that could be investigators' ace in the hole. Thank you for joining us on Season 1, Episode 1 of Dealing Justice. I'm Jennifer Dubasak. And I'm Lori Jennings. And together, we are Vintage South Productions. We started this podcast after meeting an amazing man by the name of Tommy Ray. He's a retired FDLE special agent, and Tommy Ray has been considered a leading authority in homicides and cold case homicide investigations over his 36-year career in law enforcement. He has been instrumental on many high-profile cases, including the Gainesville student murders and the Serrano quadruple murder case that was highly publicized and led him on an international manhunt that ended with the conviction of a cold blooded killer. This is just a small sample of his work. His awards and accolades are way too many to list, but trust me when I say he's well respected for his accomplishments and in crime investigations, but his achievements don't stop there. Tommy Ray originated the concept for the cold case playing cards, which have been introduced into state and federal prison systems throughout the U.S. and now internationally. To date, there have been more than 70 cold cases solved based on the tips from the cold case playing cards and hundreds of leads generated. Hearing Tommy Ray's passion for the victims made us realize that if it worked that well in the prisons, it could surely benefit the cases to appeal to the general public for help. Hopefully you guys will have information out there that will help solve some of these cases. And I think it's important, you know, we're not out there. We're not investigators. We're not professionals in chasing down missing people. And, and that's not our job here. You know, we're storytellers and we have that passion for connecting, you know, with people and for sharing their stories. So that was really our motivation behind doing this. And for us, meeting Tommy Ray and Lori and I were always have this fascination and this love for crimes and mysteries and cold cases. And so I think that this is a perfect storm and a perfect way for us to be able to be involved in a positive way and hopefully to make an impact. And I think when we really saw this opportunity was with the Jennifer Kessie case because it's in our own backyard and it's close to our hearts. We are based in Orlando, Florida, and the Jennifer Kessie case happened right here. And it was important for us to do these interviews directly with the family. You know, we really wanted to give the families their opportunities to talk with us, what they wanted out there about their loved one. And we know people that know her, and we've heard these stories now for 13 years. And Lori had a chance to talk with the family and friends, and I think it's important to note that these interviews Lori did directly with them. And just talking with the family, it makes it real. It's not just a story. It's not just an object. She was a real person. She was a daughter, a sister. I mean, those interviews and especially with her father have never left me like every single day I wake up that man's heartache is just unbelievable unfathomable and that's part of what we're learning and dealing with these people that they've had to live with these situations in their life so hopefully by doing this, we can get that story out there and we can make a difference with somebody, again, that's right here in our backyard. And who better to tell you about Orlando than us? That's right. And be sure to stay tuned to the end of the podcast as we do have some updates on this case. Our intention with this series is to humanize each person on the cold case playing cards so they become more 
than just a victim. So that if someone is holding information that could help bring them home, that you feel compelled to act. Our goal is to lay out the timelines and pertinent details that may jog someone's memory. We would love to see the day where there are no faces to put on the cold case playing card. But until that day comes, we will continue working with Tommy Ray and telling these stories in pursuit of dealing justice. It's time for us to solve these cases one card at a time. This is episode one, the Jennifer Kessie case, three of diamonds, Florida deck. In this episode of Dealing Justice, we explore the ugly side of the city beautiful. Orlando, Florida is the number one vacation destination in the world with tourists from all over that are here to take advantage of the pristine landscape, the sunshine, and of course, Disney World. The city's name is synonymous with the theme park's mantra, the happiest place on earth. And by all means, Orlando is a fantastic place to live. But unfortunately for the Kessie family, it's where their nightmare begins. You know, I've chased suspects internationally, but it's the ones here at home, the Jennifer Kessie case in Orlando. You know, of all the cases, I knew that this case is one that we need to put on the cards that would keep it in the limelight and maybe get someone to come forward with information. Jennifer Kessie vanished from her condo near the mall at Millennia in January of 2006. Every other search for the 24-year-old to this point has failed to find her. We made her the three of diamonds on the first deck of cards. To me, you know, it appeared as a case that would be solved fairly shortly, but it appears now, you know, Jennifer Kessie vanished into thin air. It is really a mystery. Help us deal justice for the Kessie family. Hi, Drew. It's Lori Jennings with Vintage South Productions. Good morning. How are you? But I really want to spend time with you from a father's point of view sure. um, to really get to know her. And then we can go over um, some things that you want in your message. Drew Kessie tells us how his family ended up in Florida and what led Jennifer, his oldest and only daughter, to Orlando. Well, we're New Jersey people, born and raised. There, Joyce and I met at a fraternity party of mine. We were married in 1978. We had Jennifer. Um, in 1981 and it it just she was a blessing she's i don't know just from day one it was just something about jennifer that she's just special and then i got transferred with my job down to virginia area and actually we had logan six months before we moved we stayed there for about three or four years and then we visited friends in florida in tampa one weekend they had moved and we liked it so much, we bought a house that weekend and went home and sold our other one. <laughs> Left our jobs and after 10 years of marriage, moved to uh, Florida in a 10-foot U-Haul. Drew and Joyce were excited to be moving to the Sunshine State and closer to their friends who had a daughter, Lauren, who was close to Jennifer's age. Lauren and Jennifer became lifelong friends. We always joked that we were friends pre-birth, like we were just destined to be friends because our parents um, have known each other since. I I guess the late 70s, and we just reconnected as, you know, very best friends in second and third grade. And actually, her family, while they were building their house in Florida, lived with my family for a few months just while their house was being built. So we shared a bedroom, We were, and we were just, I mean, we were like sisters. We are like sisters. 
loved Florida, raised the kids. We, we raised them in Tampa for 17 years, uh, living in Odessa, one block outside of North Tampa. And just a fabulous upbringing. Logan played soccer, traveling soccer all of his life, uh, all around the world, really, as a, as a kid. And Jennifer, she wasn't too athletic. Um, her biggest accomplishment in athletics was her senior year, she wanted to run track. And her, her goal was to score one point for the track team. And on the last track meet of her last meet, she came in third place and, and scored, you know, her one point. So she was so proud of herself. She may not have been athletic, but Jennifer stood 5'8 and had an electric smile. She was a traditional beauty with tan skin and golden highlights and piercing green eyes. And while she definitely got noticed for her beauty, she had no intentions of getting by on her looks. She was very smart and she went to UCF. That was one of the hardest days of my life was dropping Jennifer off at her dorm. I cried like a little baby walking away. I really did. Walking to my car, I can remember that. Just crying like, oh my God. And she tells me she was crying too, of course. She absolutely loved college. She joined a sorority, I think the second weekend, and honestly made friends for life. In fact, her sorority sisters to this day, we see them, they have families now, they are our family. I got to talk to Carrie, Jen's roommate and sorority sister. You can really hear the connection the two of them made that very first day at college. I decided to go to UCF and I was going to move into a dorm and I had no idea who my roommates were going to be and I got a paper and her name was on the paper. So she was actually, for some reason, the first one I called and automatically through one phone call, I was able to tell, you know, that we were going to get along. You know, she was like, we were talking and she's like, I'm really concerned about the lack of closet space. And I was like, I hear you, you know, so here we are moving in, you know, and I have my parents and she has her parents and her brother and my mom was helping me unpack in my room and she went outside she came back in and she was like I really like your new roommate and I was like why is that and she goes her parents were leaving and she goes and she was crying you know she said they were hugging each other and she was crying she was like I can tell you know she's a she's a good a good girl and so my family left and here we are in this like you know cement block dorm room just the two of us and we literally stayed up all night long talking that just started a a friendship and it lasted we the two of us lived together for five straight years here's sorority's sister and roommate Lindsay. we met in college during sorority rush this would have been the end of summer of 1999 our friendship was instant there was a group of us. We were all inseparable. I would just say that she was very outgoing. And I specifically remember she had a little bit of a sass to her as, as far as um, her attitude. Um, <laughs> and I say that with a whole lot of love. I mean, she has very strong roots in New Jersey. So I guess if you kind of go with that stereotype, Jen is just loud and from the Northeast. And she was just very very Jersey in Florida. And I just remember thinking, okay, she's got a punch to her. I like this. I like this. Jennifer had a great time at college. She had friends and a fantastic internship with Westgate Resorts, where she landed a job after graduation. Westgate Lakes Resort and Spa, a family-friendly and perfectly located getaway in Orlando, Florida. 
and she just started to work there. And when she graduated, they said, well, we have three or four jobs here for you. Which one you want to do? And she picked, you know, she picked one and started uh, really what she was doing. She was streamlining the back room, the mortgage end of things. And she loved it. She loved her work. She loved the people that she was working with. It was a, a nice, close little group of four or five managers within that department. They were her family. And like any family, there was drama. Jennifer had an unwanted admirer at work, and it was definitely affecting her. She had a coworker who he kind of like made advances a lot toward her, and it bothered her. And but that we didn't discuss it that often. I mean, it was like a couple times she would say like, oh, he wants me, wanted me to go to lunch or this, that, and the other thing. She was not interested in the lease. And I remember her telling me like, he's bothered by that. And that was really the extent of it. But it wasn't simply a coworker with a crush. This was a married coworker. And Jennifer was extremely uncomfortable with the entire situation. But aside from the married coworker, her job was going great. And more importantly, Jennifer was in love. She had met Robert Allen. He was a handsome 28-year-old Englishman who lived three hours away in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. My roommate was doing a trade show up in Orlando, and he was like, hey, look, Rob, do you want to come up for Orlando for a weekend? You know, my company put me up in a hotel. We'll have a good laugh. Both of us were single at the time, so I just went up there and kind of went out in Orlando after his trade show. I noticed Jennifer, and Jennifer and I kind of saw each other and got talking to each other. After the evening progressed, we exchanged phone numbers, and I didn't think anything of it because I wasn't used to picking women's phone numbers up, and I know after the fact, Jennifer wasn't used to um, giving phone numbers out. We kept in touch after that weekend via text messages and phone calls. And after we'd been in communication for a couple of weeks, we decided uh, why not I'd go up there or, and uh, go out on a date. That's how it started. Close friends, great family, career, boyfriend, it was all coming together for Jennifer. With Carrie, Jen's longtime roommate getting married, Jen decided it was time to buy her own place. In November 2005, Jennifer bought a condo at the Mosaic Apartment Complex in Orlando. It was her first big purchase and her first time living on her own. It was an up-and-coming area at the time that was exploding with new construction and luxury apartments. There was a high-end mall nearby and popular restaurants, all within a few miles. But the area was not without its problems. Unfortunately, she was living in an apartment converting to condos at the time of the boom. She's only one of two people, three people living in the entire building of maybe 50 units. Jennifer's own condo was in the final stages of renovation and she was anxious to get it done. She'd expressed concern to several friends and family that the construction workers seemed to be dragging their feet and the fact that they had access to her apartment left her on edge. There were workers in and out of her house all the time. And she called me one day in the middle of the day at work, maybe like a month or so before this all happened. And she was having like touch-up paint done in her condo. And she said that the people had, the work workers had a key and they were in and out and she was really irritated and she just wanted the punch list finished and she didn't know why it was taking so long. And she called me because they were in her apartment and she did not want to be alone. And she was like, I want to get my key back before I leave for vacation. This is like crazy. It's taking forever. And I just remember like her feeling unnerved and like just not good about these people being in and out of her apartment. And I feel like it was very apparent that she lived alone 
You know what I mean? Like her comings and goings were that of a single woman. She didn't have male clothes hanging in her closet or anything like that. It was just her. Jennifer was a safety freak and very conscious of her surroundings. The leers and cat calls from the workers were making her uneasy, but Jennifer was assertive. She would often call her friends when she was in a vulnerable position and ask them to stay on the phone with her until she felt that she was in a safe place. Every single person I talked to, every single one of them told me how safe and cautious Jennifer was. And even her friend Kristen told me about a safety checklist that they had. Be cautious, have your phone out, have your keys out, don't look down, you know, things like that. Obviously, now I'm even more aware of those types of things because of this, but it's not like we were naive to the world. Jennifer had so much to look forward to, and she was excited about her relationship with Rob. By January 2006, their relationship was progressing, and the two were looking forward to an island vacation together. I know from my standpoint, I was like falling in love with the girl, and I was kind of like a little gun shy from previous um, relationships. And um, we didn't, we hadn't scheduled anything for New Year's. And after the fact, I was like, okay, that, that's kind of crappy we should have done we care about each other we love each other we should do something together so um adam my best friend who had a timeshare in st croix was going down with his family and he was kind of like hey look why don't you guys come down to st croix with us as you can imagine the timeshare is like a stone throw from the beach the weather was great so being down in the virgin islands you do the usual you know hang out in the sun drink cocktails just have a generally um kind of forget about everyday life I just had a blast. It was the first time Jen had met Adam and Shannon and their family. And um, like I said, him being my best friend, it was important for me to kind of get their feedback. Uh, and what Jennifer, was their feedback? Oh, they, they loved her. I mean, I remember Adam giving me a little a little bit of a, lec- not a lecture, but he was just kind of like, hey, look, I know you love this girl and stop being, you know, just accept it and enjoy it. She's awesome. You know, you guys are a great fit. You have a good time together. And all in all, it was uh, the type of vacation you dream about. From all accounts, the couple had a great time. Her father, Drew, recalls her excitement. She called me three times from the island from a long weekend. This is fabulous down here. Oh, what kind of rum? I'm like, Jen, you're there for like four days. You can talk to me when you come home. Go enjoy. She says, oh, no, I just wanted you to know. Yeah, okay, cool. So she enjoyed it. While Jennifer and Rob are away in St. Croix, Jennifer's brother, Logan, and a few of his friends decide to crash at Jennifer's place. Logan still lived with us at that point. He was moving to California the next week. So he said, hey, you know, three or four of my friends who want to go out to Orlando, have a last blowout. And then before I leave, can I use your place? And yeah, that's cool. So while she was away, he was there having fun. Now, an important side note is one of those friends that stayed with Logan at Jennifer's condo just so happened to be Jennifer's ex-boyfriend, Matt. I was aware of her ex-boyfriend and I was aware that her ex-boyfriend had a relationship with the family and had dated for a while. And, you know, Jennifer's a special person, so I could imagine anyone that had broken up with or had been broken up with would be heartbroken and would be trying to um, get back with them. To me, going back to thinking back to that period in time, I mean, I was com- I'm comfortable in my own skin and I was comfortable in the relationship Jennifer and I had, so it never fa- I never thought about anything like that. And at the end of the day, you know, kind of he's lost my gain in a way sounds callous, but, you know, I mean, obviously something wasn't working in their relationship that they'd broken up. It was clear at the time that neither Rob or Jennifer had an issue with Matt staying at her condo. They were having fun on vacation and life was going good. But that was about to change. Sunday, 
date, January 22, 2006. Jennifer and Rob flew out of St. Croix and into Miami, where they headed back to Rob's apartment in Fort Lauderdale. It was a stressful return. And both Rob and Jennifer had to be at work the next morning, so they were both anxious to get back to the apartment and get some sleep. Especially Jennifer, who had to commute all the way back to Orlando in the morning to be at work by 9 a.m. Meanwhile, Logan and his friends leave Jennifer's and go back to their respective homes. Jen stayed with me that night um, in Fort Lauderdale, which she'd done most um, weekends. We stayed when she came down here. She'd stay um, the Sunday night and then go into work first thing in the morning on the Monday. Monday, January 23rd, 6 a.m. Jennifer leaves Rob's house in Fort Lauderdale and heads straight to work. She arrives at Westgate Resort's office in Ocoee, Florida at 9 a.m., where she worked a full day. And unbeknownst to her co-workers, this would be the last time they would ever see her. That night, around 6 p.m., she left work with her boss, walked out, and said goodbye. They had a, a meeting the next morning that they had to continue, and she went about her way. Monday evening, Jennifer arrives home. She does what everybody does when they come back from an amazing vacation. She started calling all her friends and family and telling them all about the great time that she had. She called me about 6.15, just say, hi, I'm, at, I'm home. Everything's cool on my way home. Just want to say hi. And um, Logan said, hey, I, I need to talk to Jen. And Logan has said, hey, my buddy left his phone at your place. Uh, can you mail it? And I said, yeah, sure. No, no problem. I'll overnight it, you know, when I get to work. Jennifer makes one last call to Rob. This would have been about 10 p.m. Monday night. Janet called me that Monday that evening. She kind of got the impression that because I was short and, and busy that I wasn't missing her and I didn't have a great time and I was trying to reiterate to her that I did. And then uh, we went to sleep at night, just said goodnight to each other like we did every night. That call was the last known contact anyone has had with Jennifer Kessie. Tuesday, January 24th, 2006. The nightmare begins. Jen was always my um, alarm clock. I always tell people I'd sleep in if I could, but it would always be like, you know, Jen would go to work earlier than I would, so she'd either shoot me a text or shoot me a phone call. And um, I didn't hear anything that morning, and I was overslept, and I was like, shoot, you know, I'm late for work. So I shot her a text and called her, and I didn't hear anything from her, just telling her, I wish you you know, have a wonderful day, blah, 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 blah. Didn't hear anything from her. Then I had a staff meeting on Tuesday. Something happened in that staff meeting I can't recollect. It's something that had pissed me off. I was like, I can't wait to ask Jen's opinion. So um, I shot her a text after the staff meeting. The staff meeting finished around about 11 o'clock or something. And shot her a text message. I didn't hear anything from her. I was like, well, that's kind of weird. You know, I've texted her a few times now and not heard back. And normally, like, she would be religiously get back to me. Unless she was super, super busy. But most of the time, she was always pretty great about getting back to me. So I didn't think anything of it initially. But then after the second or third text message, I said I didn't hear anything. I thought, that's kind of weird. Meanwhile, in Bradenton, Florida, the Kessie family was having a typical morning. Until Drew gets a call that changes everything. Right around, I guess, 10, 30, 11 o'clock in the morning, uh, one of my very good friends is in management there. And he called me and he called Joyce and he said, hey, um, Jen didn't show up for work this morning. Is everything OK? And I'm like, well, yeah, she got back last night. I talked to her. I said, 
give me, give me a minute. I'll call her. And the rule in our house, when we gave our kids phones, Jennifer got hers at the age of 15 when she was starting to drive. If your mother or I call, you pick the phone up, period. Otherwise, you're not doing anything anymore. Your call has been forwarded to an automated voice messaging system. The first time since she was 15 years old that it didn't even ring four times to go into voicemail. It went straight to voicemail. At the tone, please record your message. Knew something was wrong right there. I just got goosebumps now. I just knew something was wrong right there. So Joyce called me and said, I can't reach her. So we knew something, boom, okay. Joyce was up at work an hour away from us. Logan was at the gym. Got him. Let's go. We, get, we need to go. We instantly knew something was wrong. I, it, it just never happened. Never happened in, in almost eight years of owning a phone and being with Jennifer and being away from Jennifer, living independently. Uh, just never happened, especially going right to voicemail. So we started, let's go, let's go. Now, on the way, we called every hospital, police, jail. I mean, we were calling anybody, the state troopers, to see if anything was going on. And we kept calling. We just kept calling back and calling back. Drew and Joyce also began calling Jennifer's friends, starting with her boyfriend, Rob. Joyce contacted me and was just kind of like, hey, look, have you heard from Jennifer? And I was like, I haven't actually. I knew she had a busy day being, um, having been gone for a week. But um, I didn't think anything of it. And then uh, Logan called and they were all panicking and they're like, hey, look, we're going to Orlando. And I was just kind of like taken aback. You don't think about things like this because it's like, it's so sad. It's just something that you could never fathom that would ever, ever happen to someone that you love or you care about. And I mean, you feel it's just something on TV. I ended up finishing work and then drove up there. When they got up there, they were like, something's wrong. And then I drove up there. Jennifer's best friend, Lauren, was traveling for work when she got the call. Rob called me and left me a message and, and asked, like, had I heard from Jen and whatever, and he hadn't heard from her. And I I remember just saying, like, no, what are you talking about? So I called her and said, I don't know if you're annoyed or what's going on, but Rob's looking for you, and he's, he's feeling concerned that he hasn't heard from you. And then maybe, like, an hour later, her brother called me, and he just was, telling me that, you know, this is this is really bad. They can't find Jen. Her parents have been calling and she never showed up for work. And I just remember leaving where I was and going back to my office and just telling my boss I have to go because I just knew immediately, like, this is not her. And I went home from work and I immediately booked a flight to be with her family. I just was like, this is not who she is. As the Kessies were desperately driving to Orlando, making calls and trying to figure out where their daughter was, Drew had the foresight to call the manager of the condo to see if Jennifer's car was in the parking lot. It was not. Drew then begged them to check her condo for any sign of Jennifer. I need you to go in her condo. Well, I have to get somebody I'm not allowed in alone. Fine. Do what you need to do. We need to see if Jennifer's in that condo. Took about 10, 15 minutes, came back on the phone with them, opened the door. He said, she's not here and everything looks pretty normal. Nothing's, you know, places in rain shaft or anything. Okay. So we got up there about one o'clock. Uh, police met us. Uh, a patrolman came in, looked around, shrugged his shoulders and said she probably had a fight with her boyfriend. She'll be back and walked out. The Kessies and Jennifer's friends were extremely frustrated that the police didn't seem to be taking their situation seriously. The police officers show up and you're trying to explain this to them 
And I'm sure everybody that's ever gone missing for more than 24, you know, that first 24 hours, they say the same thing to the person. Oh, they would never do this or they would never do that. And we were like, no, I'm serious. Mm -hmm. They were like, oh, maybe she ran away, you know, met somebody and she'll be back in a couple of days. Absolutely not. Now, at this point in 2006, obviously adults were allowed to be missing in Florida. There were no policies and procedures in place for any missing person, child or adult, in Florida in 2006. Pretty hard to believe. So we went about trying to convince the authorities in Orlando that something is wrong. And of course, we knew people. So we started making calls to the people we know, like, please get these people out here. Something's wrong. She's not she's not around. So uh, it took us about four hours and finally a detective came out and yeah, something's wrong here. And that started our world. By that time, we already had uh, almost 14 people in the condo helping us by 4.30 that day that she did not answer the phone at 7.30 in the morning or at 10.30 in the morning, I should say, when I tried to call her. We were on the corners passing out flyers already. I mean, at 4.30 in the afternoon, we just we just knew. I'm Amy Caulfield. This morning, investigators in Orlando are trying to track down a missing woman. Huge numbers of volunteers and police were looking everywhere for Jennifer. We were driving around trying to, you know, look through the bushes to see if maybe her car had gone off the road. Like, like we knew something was wrong. Despite all their search efforts, there was still no sign of Jennifer, nor her car, her cell phone, briefcase or purse. And another missing item was the cell phone she agreed to overnight to her brother's friend. For two days, the search continued for Jennifer. Volunteers searched by foot, police canvassed the area by horseback and helicopter when finally they got a break in the case. Jennifer's car, a black Chevy Malibu, was found parked at a nearby apartment complex, Huntington on the Green. This whole time, people were searching everywhere, and yet her car was sitting one mile away from her home this entire time. Jennifer's friend Lindsay remembers the day they found the car. And she was afraid of the answers it would bring. I remember um, when I was in South Dakota and I was watching the coverage live on online the day that they found the car. And I remember thinking, oh, please don't be in the trunk. Jennifer's body was not in the trunk and her personal belongings were still nowhere to be found. The search continued. Police were hopeful when they discovered the apartment complex where her car was found actually had security cameras. Her car was parked one mile down the street. As we found out through film the same day, someone pulled it into a very bad condominium complex down the same street of hers, 1.2 miles, pulled it in, sat in it 32 seconds, wiped it down, got out, walked away, never looked back. And we have that film. Came out of a 30-year-old camera And it's a security film, which means every three seconds it takes a picture. This person's silhouette is behind a fence post every three seconds. The luckiest man in the world. To set the timeline for you, this would mean that while the Kessies were desperately speeding to Orlando to look for their missing daughter, and Rob was in Fort Lauderdale realizing that something was badly wrong, there was an unnamed, unknown suspect parking Jennifer's car one mile from her apartment complex. However, the public would not know about this key piece of information until 15 months later. And while that may seem astounding, 
It's not uncommon for police to hold back details. We asked Tommy Ray why investigators sometimes withhold information. Yeah, although I never worked on the Jennifer Cassie case, sometimes you have cases where you need to hold something back. There's several different reasons. They may or may not wanted to release that. You try to hold back a little something that nobody else knows. You know, that only the perpetrator, the murderer, you know, knows this or other people involved in it. It verifies or backs up other evidence that you have. So in a lot of the cases I worked, there was always a little something, you know, that uh, was held back until we thought it was appropriate time to release the information. To this day, that haunts us. I look at it every day to this day. It's been enhanced by NASA. That's the best we have. We've gone back recently. No, it's best it can be. And we can't see that face. We are on your side, giving you one more look at this important video. If you recognize any details in this video you think can help in the Kessie case, call Crimeline at 1-800-4- I say if someone, you don't need to see the face. If someone saw that, say, I know who that is. That's my, you know, my friend or what have you. But no one has spoken up. The irony of like having somebody on camera parking her car and, you know, like you'll never get that image out of your head, but then like nothing came of that. It's like insane. Her picture is still up all over central Florida, but the leads have started to dwindle. Tonight, police are hoping the release of this video, information about the fingerprints and possible DNA will generate some more tips and hopefully lead to Jennifer Cassie. Today marks three years since Jennifer Kessie suddenly vanished. Five years to the day. Today is the eighth anniversary since Jennifer Kessie disappeared. Well, Mr. Kessie, if they don't find her this hunting season, they'll find her next hunting season. Thirteen years ago, she vanished without a trace. I never thought 13 years ago that we would be here in the exact same spot. No answers, no clues, no named suspects, nothing. And it is incredibly hard to explain, but it is like time has stood still when it comes to Jen. It's not over, but it's not moving forward like the rest of my life. There's right. a huge piece of me that's stuck in January 2006. Jennifer Kessie was 24 years old and at the prime of her life. It's hard to believe she vanished without a trace. Where is she? Friends, family, investigators, fellow podcasters, and armchair detectives have theorized a million possible scenarios, each one more heartbreaking than the next. We have no answers. What we do have are suspicions, questions, and a grainy video. I truly believe she got ready for work. She walked out her door, locked her door, and between her door and her car is where something most likely happened. And you can ask Logan and you can ask Joyce. You'll probably get three different answers from us. And what do you think about Jennifer? How can someone that's so intelligent, so aware of its surroundings, this happen to? It's just when you think about it being random and think about someone just grabbing her that morning, how did they even know she was there? She was gone for five or six days. You know, how did they know that someone lived there. But then when you talk to people that deal with this regularly, they're like, random things do happen. And that's what I think. But then I'm like, Jen would be, um, she'd have a guard up. I don't think that someone would just be able to grab her. I think she was aware of her surroundings. Then I think to myself, well, did she know the individual? 
And then I start thinking to myself, well, surely if she was concerned about someone, she would have voiced that to me. And it's difficult for me as well because knowing that I was her boyfriend and knowing that I, she'd always say how safe she felt with me and how it made her feel comfortable and protected. I mean, it's difficult knowing that I was a couple of hours away and I couldn't do anything. My thoughts on what happened have changed over the years. And they continue to change. At first, I thought for sure she was trafficked because it just seemed like the most obvious answer. And I'm not sure that I feel that way. I'm not sure how strongly I feel on that on that anymore. I've also considered that it was someone or a group of people, the workers at her condo, perhaps, that abducted her. And not necessarily for trafficking, but for their own satisfaction. I've gone back and forth with her abductor being someone she knew. And I'm not going to go into in specifics on that, but there was a time where I was absolutely convinced someone that she knew well. And I've also, and I, I think this is how I feel right now, that it's completely random and someone just got lucky. And we always go back to, no matter what angle we try to take, who it was, where it happened, what was it, Monday night or Tuesday morning, the one question we can never answer is, why bring the car there? Did somebody involved live in those condos? Was the person involved trying to get it back to Jen's condo but didn't remember where it was? Because I feel like if you're going to, you know, you're going to set a house on fire, don't go back to the house fire. So why are you going to bring the car back so close? I don't think that that was, it couldn't have been random. The one thing that I just wanted to always reiterate was that there's just no chance that she would have... cases now where a young woman or young man goes missing and most of the time you know it's a terrible outcome and I have to say I envy those friends because those friends they're going through something so awful that they have closure perhaps not answers as to why but at least there's an end and with us her friends and her family it's been a really slow hell of a 13 years wondering every single day where is she we're not asking for Jennifer to be returned alive, unscathed. We know that's unreal, un unrealistic. We're asking for our daughter's whereabouts to be made known. I don't care why, I don't care when, I don't care how, and I don't care who. I really don't care who anymore. All I truly care about is to find my daughter so we can take care of her properly for the good or the bad. I'm her father. I'm ultimately responsible for finding my daughter. It just takes one tip, just one person to come forward to help the Kessie family bring Jennifer home. There's a famous quote by Benjamin Franklin that says, three can keep a secret if two of them are dead. case has always fascinated and horrified us. Exactly. There are so many twists and turns and new information that it's hard to keep up with. 
there's plenty of information. So again, there's so much out there. We implore you to do your own research. Although we have a person of interest, the person on that videotape that has yet to be identified, the police have never publicly named a suspect, but there are theories. And of course, we all wonder about the people closest to her. Like uh, Rob, let's just start there. He was Jennifer's boyfriend at the time of her disappearance, but he has always fully cooperated with investigators. He has a solid alibi and he passed a polygraph. And it's important too, and we tried to be sensitive to know that it's 13 years. He's married, he has kids, but he has always been there for the Kessie family. Lori, you spoke with him. Is that the truth? You know, we read about it, but when you spoke with him and you spoke with Jennifer's father, Drew, Did you feel that there was really nothing there that they truly believe he couldn't have done it? Yes, I truly do. And he also, you know, he talks about when he first started dating his wife that, you know, look, this is going to be important to me. I need to know where she is. Yes, his current wife that he wanted to let her know this has happened to me and I need to be there for the family whenever they need me. And I want to be able to do it and get her story out. And she completely understands. And I don't think Drew is somebody who would mince any words. And I don't think he's, I think he's completely unbiased and fully self-aware when it comes to all of the possibilities of things that could have happened to Jennifer and the people who could have done it. So I don't believe that he's, you know, it's veiled in some sort of, you know, affection for Rob. I truly believe he, he believes that he couldn't have had anything to do with it. Now, there's also the ex-boyfriend, Matt. Now, remember, he was friends with Jennifer's brother, Logan, and he stayed with the condo while she was away with her new current boyfriend. Um, It's debatable whether or not he still had feelings for her. And, you know, he's staying in her condo knowing that they're off on a vacation. I mean, you know, set the stage. You're at your ex's condo. You're seeing pictures. Yes. You're knowing that she's off with her current boyfriend. and, And, you know, so... Well, and there's other details also. Yeah, that we don't really have time to go into. And we didn't talk to Matt specifically, of course, but it's out there in other venues that um, he was seen drunk around her condo. I think the bar across the street from her condo the night before she disappeared. And he doesn't live there. Correct. I mean, he doesn't live in that area. And it was odd for him to be drinking by himself in a bar in and around her, her condo. But again, could have just been circumstantial. Absolutely. But like I said, that's still out there. And then we have the co-worker. This is somebody that a lot of people can't shake the idea that he had to have something to do with it. He was married and by numerous people's accounts, he continued to hit on her and it became more and more aggressive. Um, and, And she had rejected his advances, according to everyone. She did not have any desire to be involved with a married man. I think that hearing that somebody said that when she came back from her vacation, now, mind you, she comes back from her vacation. She goes to work one day at work and this co-worker is heard berating her and interrogating her about her vacation with her boyfriend. And so that part to me really You know, that stands out to me that here it is. She comes back. He's asking her and questioning her enough for coworkers to hear. And then the next day shows up late for work. And according to everybody at work now, you know, we all have some strange people at work. But according to everybody, he was acting strange. So uh, he's at the top of many people's radar. 
And then we have another group. We have the construction workers. Now, it's no, Jennifer talked about it. It made her feel uncomfortable. They had keys and access. The buildings were so empty and rumor had it too that some of the construction companies allowed some of those workers to stay in those empty condos. Tell them, because I think it's important that they hear how many of those condos were occupied at the time. I think he said there was, what, three to five people living? Out of a huge apartment complex because it was... Now, again, just to reiterate, it was an apartment complex that was being completely renovated. Well, and don't forget, too, right after she disappeared, the workforces disappeared. Like, of course, you had a lot of undocumented workers in the construction business. We get that. But it was like once she went missing, people scattered everywhere. They didn't show up for work and it just dwindled so badly. And again, I would say, too, I know lots of people that talked about, well, why didn't the police pull all these suspects in and talk to them. And it's just a fact that many of them were undocumented employees. And many people say that, you know, they went back to wherever they were from and went to another country. And once you cross those borders, you can't exactly call somebody in and say, hey, can you know, you come in and just chat with us. So that is a big reason why um, that thread just continued to be pulled and we really never got to the end of that one. There'd also been documented by um, by the news and police reports of uh, one woman. I think you had read the news story, too, that she literally got scared from one of the workers uh, when she was in the gym or something. So she was at the gym and one of the construction workers doing maintenance there kept leering at her and then was getting closer and then was making comments. And, you know, we don't have to go into what kind of comments, but just those lewd comments that weren't, you know, completely overstepping, but enough that as a woman, your radar goes up. And this kept going, kept going till she said he got closer and closer. And at that point, she literally fled the building and said she was never, ever going back into the gym. I mean, I get chills thinking of that because that's terrifying. Yes. And what are the odds? Uh, You know, but again, it's just one more theory and one more suspect. And the final scenario is, could it be someone she didn't know at all? Just a random act of violence. Could it be stranger danger? That's a scenario that um, so many of us don't even want to think about because, you know, that's terrifying. That means that she did nothing other than planning on a normal day, taking a shower, getting her briefcase out, walking outside with that FedEx package. You know, in my mind, I picture her walking outside with her briefcase, with the phone that she was supposed to FedEx, with all of these things that a normal, just a normal day for her. And it turned in to be a day that, you know, nobody would ever see her again. And it was just simply a stranger who wanted to take her. And that's terrifying because those are always the hardest to really track down and the hardest cold cases to solve. And well, who's on that videotape? He is still out there. That person is still out there. And that person, if he isn't responsible for Jen's disappearance, he knows who is. We do have the latest update on this case, and this information could quickly change the course of the way things have been going for the past 13 years. Three months after an attorney for the Orlando Police Department insisted the search for Jennifer Cassie is open and active, the city has decided not to fight a legal challenge from the missing woman's family. Her parents and brother sued to force Orlando police to turn over all of the investigative case files, some of which police argued were confidential. 
So it's no secret that the Kessie family wasn't really happy with the way the Orlando Police Department was doing their investigation. And in 2018, the Kessie family filed a lawsuit against the Orlando Police Department asking the court to allow their private investigator to obtain the OPD's records on the case. As you know, you can't have records of a live case. I know that, but maybe other people don't. If it's considered an active case, the police department does not have to release the records. And that's 13 years of the family not having any answers. And I get it. I, you know, I, I get it. But this is where the family is saying they had to sue. They had to sue and say, close the case so that we can get this because they knew that nobody's going to look for your child like you are. So I think personally that this was the best thing for everybody. You know, again, the Kessies are going to track this down. I, the, the Orlando Police Department has many things on their plate. The Kessies are going to have one laser focus, and that is bringing Jennifer home. And she deserves that. Right. And that's what happened. So this past March, the Kessie family actually settled their lawsuit with the OPD, which allowed them then for their private investigator to take over the case. So with a new investigator on the case, if you have any tips or any information, you can call either the Central Florida Crime Line and you can remain anonymous. And that number is 800-423-TIPS. Or you can call the Orlando Police Department at 321-235-5300. Even if you've called before, because with the new investigator, fresh set of eyes, something could have been missed with all the thousands of leads coming in 13 years ago. Call again and have this investigator be able to. He's fresh, he's new, and he's willing and eager for any tips. Or you can also visit jenniferkessie.com for more information. However you wish to get information or a tip out there, please do so. Thank you for listening to our very first episode of Dealing Justice. Like us on Facebook at Cold Case Playing Cards for all the latest information on this case and other cards we'll be featuring on future episodes. Dealing Justice is written, produced, and hosted by Jennifer Dubasak and myself, Lori Jennings. Our sound design is by John Schaub. Our executive consultant is the Cold Case Playing Cards creator, retired FDLE special agent, Tommy Ray. If you want to help us spread the word about these victims' stories, please subscribe and leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast app and tell your friends to subscribe. And join us next week on Dealing Justice. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.